Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're very glad to have you this morning. If this is your first time here or you're newish to the Phoenix area or new to our church, uh, so glad that you're here. My name is Gray, senior pastor, and uh, would be happy to meet you after the service if we haven't met yet. We are going through the book of Acts together, Acts of the Apostles, and we're coming to the end of chapter two. We're going to have to pick up the pace here because if we continue at this pace, we're going to still be in this in 2030. Um, but so we'll pick it up the pace a little bit, but we wanted to have the, the ground really laid in these first two chapters. And there's this beautiful picture of the church community at the end of chapter two, this, this kind of snapshot of the beauty of the church, which is a very famous passage and a beautiful passage. I wonder if you've uh, ever heard the phrase that uh, the perfect can be the enemy of the good. Uh, have you heard that before? The perfect can be the enemy of the good. I think what's meant by that phrase is that sometimes we can have an idealized version of something in our heads that's so clear and so beautiful to us that, um, that it can actually blind us to some of the less than perfect but still really good things that are around us. And I wonder if you've had this experience where you look at a blessing of your life. Um, it could be anything that the Lord has blessed you with, a, a spouse that, that you love, or a really good friend, or your children, or a large bank account, or a good job that you have, or whatever it is that the Lord has blessed you with. And you look at it and you say, and you just have this feeling of tenderness towards it for just a second. You say, I'm really... I'm really thankful for that. And maybe there's a spirit of conviction too, as you think, I haven't really been truly thankful enough for that because I've had in my mind all the things that I wanted that I don't have. The perfect has been the enemy of the good. And I think there's some dangers here as we come to a passage uh, that's about the beauty of the early church uh, to see this idyllic picture um, of what the early church was devoted to, and certainly there's enough here for us to be challenged, called back to, but there's also a danger that we can say um, the perfect can be the enemy of the good. And, and the, it's, it's very clear to all of us that the church, the church of Jesus Christ, is imperfect. It has warts, it has scars, it has hurt people. Some of you are those people in this room. And yet... What we need to see is that the church is good. It's not perfect. It's actually really good. And that's what I want us to look at as we come to the end of this 
passage in chapter 2. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. It is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. It never returns void. It surely will do all that it sets out to do. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. In it is life. I pray as we come to it that you would help us to sit underneath it, to love it, to delight in it, to seek to be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my favorite uh, novels is the classic story of Watership Down. Maybe you were assigned that as your high school reading course. Uh, maybe you read the Spark Notes or the Cliff Notes version instead. Um, I certainly did some of that in high school, but some of these books are wonderful uh, to return to, and Watership Down is one of those books by Richard Adams. It's a, it's a great book, and if you don't know the story at all, it's about a group of rabbits, uh, fierce fighting rabbits led by uh, Fiverr, this rabbit called Fiverr, and, and Hazel. And they are fleeing from the destruction that is to come. They have a home. A, a rabbit's home is called a warren. And so they have this warren, and Fiverr especially has a danger sense. And he's, he senses the coming danger, and he leads a group of remnant rabbits from this warren to find a new home. And there's danger everywhere on the road. Everywhere they go, there's, there's danger that they meet. But eventually, they run into another rabbit who invites them into his warren. His name is Cowslip. And Cowslip invites them into this warren that seems like the most idyllic place possible. They meet the rabbits of Cowslip Warren, and they see that they are fat and happy. <laughs> These rabbits have all the food that they want. They have a constant source of food. These rabbits have found a home where seemingly there is no danger. They have a protector. There's this mysterious man who comes and keeps out all of the predators, the dogs and the cats and the foxes and the weasels that eat rabbits. And so they think that they have found this most amazing place. And these rabbits of Cowslip's Warren are so fat and happy and so unworried about danger that they've even devoted themselves to things like the arts and, and singing, and they've developed culture. And this just seems like the best possible home, and everyone in the group wants to join this new Cowslip's Warren, a new home. All the rabbits except for one, Fiverr, who has the danger sense. And he senses that there's something bad underneath the surface. As, as good as it looks on the outside, there is something here that has not been addressed. For instance, the rabbits at Cowslips Warren won't answer questions that start with where. Like, where does the food come from? They won't answer that. They avoid things. It turns out that these rabbits in this warren are living on a farmer's land who is fattening them up for the slaughter. <laughs> so occasionally, a snare will be set out, and one of the rabbits will die, but they love their life so much that they just ignore that danger, the possibility of death, and they just live as if it doesn't matter. So 
these other rabbits who come into this war and realize the truth that they're in a dangerous place and then they flee. And Cowslip's warren from then on is called now the warren of snares. They didn't find the ideal community that they were looking for because every community fails to live up to its promise. In fact, I mean, we're conditioned to think this. If a perfect community is presented to us in a book or in a movie or something like that, we know, we just sense, we got that fiver sense, don't we, that something bad is about to happen if we're presented with a perfect community because we know that there are no perfect communities. It's dangerous. And some of you have had the experience of a church where the church, it seems to you, is a warren of snares. It's, it's actually a dangerous place. Maybe it looks like it's good on the outside, but on the inside, there's a lot of danger. You're right to be careful. You're right to be careful. Because there are some religious communities that are warrens of snares. There are some groups that are just dangerous that just prop up the leader's bad intentions or that just want money or any number of snares. But beyond that, you're right to be careful even if you find a church that is good because it is full of sinners and dangers because the world is full of dangers and sinners. And like Fiverr and Hazel, we're finding this community. What we need is not the perfect or the ideal, which doesn't exist this side of heaven. What we need is a good home. And I believe that the church, as pictured for us here in Acts chapter 2, is that good place, even with its dangers and snares. Despite sin and danger, the local church remains the most irresistible community available to the world. That's what I want us to look at together, this irresistible community of the early church, the church that is devoted to certain things and that God is giving them favor and the Lord is adding to their number day by day. That continues, by the way. The Lord continues to add people to His church, this irresistible community, and that church wherever you find it, despite sin and danger, which we need to not ignore, it, does, it is dangerous to love people. It is dangerous to know sinners. But the local church remains the most irresistible community available to the world. Let's look at these six verses together and answer three questions about this irresistible community. The what question, the where question, and the how question. What were they doing? What was the early church doing that made them so irresistible? Well, I can say two pairs of words. The first two start with L. The second two start with W. They were learning and loving. They were worshiping and witnessing. That's the way we can summarize it. They were learning and loving. Look at these uh, first couple of verses here, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They were a learning community, first of all. They listened to the apostles' 
teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? Well, we've talked about this a couple of times. The apostles were teaching the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. Their words would become the New Testament. They were teaching the Old Testament, and they were teaching the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' teaching. Jesus who came, and Jesus who died, and Jesus who rose again and ascended. This was the content of their teaching spread across the beautiful canvas of the Old Testament story. And that teaching, what they taught then, became what was passed down that is now our New Testament. So we ourselves as a church are also listening to the apostles' teaching as they taught, since we have these books, like the book of Acts of the Apostles. And their teaching was accompanied and underscored by wonders and signs that Jesus said they would have this power. It's important to see that it's the apostles who are working the signs and the wonders, not, not everyone. These are still the ones with Jesus' authority who were working these signs and wonders, and they are in awe of them. And we too, like this church, have the record of the signs and wonders of the apostles, many of which are contained in this book. And so we also learn from the signs and the wonders and the teaching of the apostles. But they weren't just learning, they were loving as well. And the key word here is fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The word there is koinonia. It is a very rich biblical word. It, it means shared, the shared life, the fellowship of the believers. The most beautiful and concise picture of it in the Bible is the Trinity itself, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that we have fellowship, or you know, the New Testament says we have fellowship with the Father. It's the same fellowship that Jesus had with the Father and the Spirit. We've been invited into their shared life. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past have shared everything. They've loved each other. They've loved self, and we are invited into that. That's the fellowship that we have, and that's the fellowship that the church is. It's a loving community. It's a shared life. But it's interesting, Paul also uses the word koinonia, the shared life. He also uses that word to talk about giving financially to those who are in need. It's an offering and we see that picture here as well. They were all who believed were together, verse 44, and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were not just sharing themselves, in other words. They didn't just have a relationship. The koinonia was the sharing of their resources as well. And we're going to spend some more time in a couple of weeks on this as we talk about the story of Ananias and Sapphira, because there's a challenge to this community of sharing resources. But they were a family, and families share life, and they share resources, finances. They were committed to caring for those who were in need. They were committed to not having a needy person among them. It doesn't mean that uh, their private property was erased, that there was no sense of individual ownership. After all, in just a second, it's going to say they were meeting in their homes, so some of them had homes to still meet in. They didn't sell all their homes just to give. They had a meeting place. So it doesn't erase that. But the point here is in this community, they were focused on loving one another and seeing who had need and meeting those needs. 
and in sharing their life together. They were learning, they were loving, they were worshiping, and they were witnessing. They were worshiping. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of the bread and the prayers is worship. The breaking of the bread here refers, I think, to the Lord's Supper, not to just having meals together. There's a couple of different reasons why I think that. First of all, because there is a definite article here, the breaking of the bread. It seems like it's referring to something very specific. But also because in just a moment, they're going to say, he's going to say in verse 46, that they're breaking bread in each other's homes. Additionally, so he's not repeating himself there. He says there's the breaking of the bread, and then there's breaking bread in each other's homes. So this first one refers to the sacrament that Jesus himself said to do in remembrance of me, the breaking of the bread, reminding themselves that Christ's body was broken and his blood was poured out, the supper, and the prayers. That is, the, the written prayers the spoken prayers, the, the free prayers, the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the liturgy. They committed themselves to doing this. And this is what our worship still includes as well. The Word, the Apostles' teaching, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Baptism was last week. We saw they were baptized into this community. And prayer, the prayers. When we pray together, we confess our sins, but also when we sing, when we sing songs, by the way, that is a form of prayer. That is the prayers. They were worshiping, and they were witnessing. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were not so concerned with themselves that they didn't have an eye towards the outside. Yes, it was the Lord who was adding to their number. He was the one who was bringing in these people, but they were His witnesses. As Jesus had told them they would be to the, to the apostles, He had said, as He ascended into heaven, you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And their worship and their loving each other, they know we're Christians by our love. This was all a witness and they had favor with those who were outside. They concerned themselves with the way this community appeared to those who were outside. Even while committing to the apostles' teaching, committing to a different way of life, they had still an outside look as well. This is what they were doing. They were learning. They were loving. They were worshiping. They were witnessing. This is the substance of what made up the early church. And I want us to see that there's something very beautiful and something very unique and something rich about that that we don't find really in any other community because what the church does when it's functioning as the church, it really is attending to the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension, which are two great needs. What do I mean by that? The vertical dimension, meaning our life is before God, that we have... Um, a need to learn, to be taught about who God is, to, to know the divine as He's presented by the apostles. This need to worship 
We are worshiping creatures, human beings. We worship things. We look for something to give our, uh, our attention and worth to. And they gave their attention and their worth to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it was also horizontal. It wasn't just vertical. It wasn't just about them and God. It was about the community. It was about each other. They cared for each other. They cared for the world. And this unique, rich community is good. The church is good because it attends to the vertical and the horizontal needs. That's what it does, and it does well. And it's not perfect at doing either one, but it is good. Second question, where were they doing these things? Where were they doing these things? And I think this is very significant in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Where were they doing these things? In the temple and in their homes. Now, it's very interesting Why did the early church go to the temple? Maybe you've just read over that and you haven't really thought about it very much. Why did the church go to the temple? That's where the Jewish people would be worshiping, right? That's where they worshiped before they followed after Christ. Why would they go back to the temple? Partly because that's exactly what Jesus did, right? They were followers of Jesus and Jesus went to the temple. That's where he often would read the scriptures and would teach. These Christians still wanted to be together in the place where God's Word was read and where they could pray together as a community. They went back to the temple because it was the structure and the institution where they could find that. And this is very significant. They didn't abandon God's institution, because He's the one who established the temple, by the way, until they had built a new institution that we know of as the church, a new gathering place. They would, in other words, gather for formal worship. This is really an important point that I want to draw out because oftentimes there can be an idealized version of the early church where it's just, it's just the house church, that all they were doing was just meeting in each other's homes and they were just sharing things in common and they never had a, a sense of formality. And any time that we bring in formality into, into a worship, then it's bad. Any kind of institutional impulse is bad, people say. But of course, they weren't just meeting in the temple. They were meeting in homes. And there's a balance here that I think is really important. The church is both gathered and it is scattered. It is formal and it is informal. It is institutional and it is grassroots. It is those things at once. There's a lot of negativity out there about the institutional church. I'd like to speak, if I may, and I may, because I am speaking, um, in favor of the institutional church. Because institutions are important. They're the backbone. They're the structure. Planting sustainable churches that will last beyond just a single generation is important. Starting schools that teach children well and about the gospel is important work. Institutions are important. 
And some people like to say things against the institution, and we know where they're coming from. Some people say the church doesn't need to be to have a building in order to be a church, which is true. Of course that's true. But buildings, they can be helpful, can they not? Helpful to have a gathering place, helpful to have a spot in a neighborhood like we've been blessed here so that we can have a center where we can serve this neighborhood. Churches, people say, don't need to be in a denomination. That is, of course, very true. Churches do not need to be in a denomination to be an actual church. But denominations have a function. They serve a purpose. They can safeguard doctrine. They can adjudicate disputes. They can share resources. What people really mean when they say that the church is an institution and it's bad is that they say institutions tend towards corruption. And that is exactly true. Institutions do tend towards corruption. But that's why we need the other side. Because the church is not just a place that meets in the temple. It's not just an institution. It is also a place where people meet in homes. The church is also scattered. And in a sense, what we're always returning to is the simplicity, a simplicity that must be safeguarded where the church is just a group of people united in the truth, caring and loving for one another as pictured for us here. And we can all sense when things get a little too institutional. The church, in other words, should not be something that, it neither should be something that you just go to for a gathering, nor should it be something that you just experience at home. It is both. And I would say the church is uniquely beautiful when it does both. When it is a place where people are gathered and scattered, when it's a place where there is a formality to worship and an informality to the relationships in our lives, a place that is institutional and enduring, and also a place that is grassroots and simple. Where were they doing? In the temple and each other's homes until the church was established and they could meet in churches and still in each other's homes. Final question. How? How were they doing these things? In what spirit, you might say? It's not just what the church does and where it does it. The how is really important. The last part of verse 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Another way to translate that would be to say, with exaltation and sincerity of heart. There's a joy there, and there's an authenticness, a sincerity of heart. They were reverent and serious about the apostles' teaching, but that did not keep them from being irrepressibly joyful. The how of the church really matters. The how, how we express the truth. We need to remember that this is a Spirit-filled church. Acts 2 describes for us the Spirit comes upon. And what does the Spirit do when it comes upon a person or a church? It produces fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. 
the fruit of the Spirit. And this is a Spirit-filled church. This was not rote. This was not mechanical. This was not joyless. This was delightful for the people who were involved. And we need to hear this message as well because maybe we've been to a church like this. I hope that we're not a church like this. I hope we never are a church like this. But there can be a sense sometimes when the church is faithful, there's teaching, there is even maybe small groups and and homes, there's the Lord's Supper, they're doing all these other things. But when you step back and you ask, where's the joy? What is animating this church? Where's the spirit of authenticity and care and love and joy and peace? Because I thought that we were gathering around the best possible news that the world has ever heard. And let's not forget what that news is or what was animating these people. Why were they having fellowship with one another? Why were they hungry to learn from the apostles and their teaching? Why were they sharing their belongings? What had possessed them to do all these things? They were doing these things because they were animated and enjoyed and delighted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection, the things that the apostles were telling them, and they knew that now they had life with God, now and for eternity. And that was irresistible, this call to them. They delighted in this, and God used it. In verse 47, it says, day by day, they're adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is a saved community. And when you are saved, when you avoid destruction or condemnation, it should give a delight. We have the best possible news, and this should animate us. This church, idyllic as it looks to us, even reading it right here, we know was full of sinners and dangers, toils and snares, as this church is. This church, Ascension Church of Phoenix, is far from perfect. If you think it's a really great community, just stick around for a little while. Some things will show up that will challenge you. It's not a perfect community. It's not an ideal community. It is full of sinners and dangers of all kinds. It's full of people who can hurt you. And some of us bear the wounds of that hurt. None of, this is to, none of this is to say and paste over that and to say that, you know, the church, just be happy about the church even though it's not perfect. Those wounds have to be dealt with. This church, though, and all churches are not perfect. The church makes wrong turns. The church is, is impure. The church can be weird. The church can be internal. The church can have all kinds of dysfunctions, and all of that is true. But what other community, what other community gives us these things? At once, the focus on the vertical and the horizontal, something our hearts long for. At once, the focus on the formality and institution and the grassroots. At once, a reverence for the truth and also a sincerity of joy. 
Find that somewhere else. So, let's not let the perfect become the enemy of the good. Let's not resist this community. Let's fully participate in the church, even knowing that there are dangers and there are sinners amongst us. Let's seek her good. Let's be reminded of her richness and her beauty and her uniqueness. Let's think well. Let's speak well. It's so easy to speak unkindly of the church in large, but this is God's irresistible community. And let's pray that God would be pleased to add and continue to add to our number those who are being saved. Let's pray.